Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD podcast, the Sectarianism, Proxies and Desectarianization project funded by Carnegie Corporation. Today, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Professor Madawi Al-Rashid, visiting professor at the Middle East Centre at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and author and co-editor of, of myriad books and articles on Saudi Arabia and the Middle East, the most recent of which is Salman's Legacy, The Dilemmas of a New Era in Saudi Arabia, which is, which is a really important read for anyone wanting to get to grips with with the, the new turn of events in Saudi Arabia. So, Madawi, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you, Simon. It's really exciting to be able to talk to you about your work, which I think has been perhaps the most important work done in, in recent decades on, on understanding the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. But I wonder if you could tell us, what was it that, that pushed you in this type of direction at first, please? Um, as a Saudi who was forced to leave the country um, in the 1970s for political reasons that had nothing to do with me, but because of my history, the history of my family, um, we um, all moved out of Saudi Arabia to Lebanon. And then uh, in Lebanon, I was studying uh, for the high school degree, then went to the American University of Beirut, but that became very difficult in the early 1980s with the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. So I came to Britain to study and continue my higher education. And as I was looking for a a PhD topic, um, I really wanted to answer the question uh, why I am here in Britain and what had gone wrong in Saudi Arabia uh, that pushed me, a young girl um, um, who never really thought about leaving the country. So I I came to uh, research uh, tribal politics and the formation of the state because any forced exile or forced migration, it has really to do with politics and the formation of the state. So my first project was on tribal politics in Saudi Arabia. Um, and I started to look at it from the 19th century onward. And that really... Um, uh, stayed with me for the last three or so decades, sure, and yeah. I tried. I tried to um, look at the wider Middle East and, and looking at Arab migration in general, especially forced migration to Britain. And but at, at the same time, I remained really anchored in, in in studying Saudi Arabia. Of course, yeah, I can certainly understand that. And and this may seem like a really obvious question, given your your personal history, like you've just said. But but what was it about politics? That, that drew you in when you could have gone in, in many other directions for, for undergraduate and indeed graduate study? Um, actually, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. When <laughs> I started my PhD at Cambridge University, I used to go to the Faculty of Oriental Studies for their weekly seminar. Right. And the faculty was full of retired military colonial types who would always say to me, 
oh, you're from Saudi Arabia, you must be studying women. So I thought I really didn't want to fall into the the stereotype. And I was interested in politics, I suppose, because I grew in a house that was very political. Politics and history were just part of our lives and also part of our forced uh, migration in a way. So I, I wanted to look at politics and look at it in a different way. I had two options, either to go down the political science uh, path or political anthropology. And I must say, I found political anthropology more relevant, especially the theories, the, the, the methodology, uh, more relevant to the study of Saudi Arabia, which continues to be a state without really the fundamental institutions and elections that normally political scientists study. So my journey started in political anthropology, looking at state formation in tribal society. And that was a big question about whether tribal society can form states. Sorry. Carry on, please. Yeah, so the state formation in a tribal society, are they capable of forming a state, centralized power, especially when all the theories were telling us that you need surplus in order to form a state? So I looked at the northern part of Saudi Arabia, a specific oasis called Hayal, where my ancestors came from, and looked at how they managed to centralize power since the 19th century. And this goes against uh, the sort of orientalist wisdom that uh, in the Arabian Peninsula in general, they were sort of, you know, marauding tribes, killing each other, fighting over scarce resources all the time, and were not able to uh, form any kind of durable chiefdoms or dynasties. So my, my first project was on debunking these sort of uh, stereotypes and showing that, of course, there was a, a, an attempt to form a centralized polity. We may not call it a state, but it had all the sort of structures um, um, of a political system that that can actually last. Then the the second question was, how did these sort of local political formations interact with the region and with the outside world? And here we really need to bring in the role of foreign powers, such as first the Ottoman Empire and later the British, um, when... uh, since this First World War, and that created a different kind of context where state formation was derailed or new ones uh, erupted in the region because of this external factor. So this was uh, my first project, and from that moment, I sort of combined history and politics, looking at different kind of um, uh, trajectories in the history of Saudi Arabia. Um, And then... Obviously, I moved to specific topics such as the rise of Islamism. And this was interesting because um, most of the Islamist movement that emerged in the Middle East and the Muslim world were reacting against uh, sort of secular government or we can say quasi-secular governments. And um, uh, they were very critical of westernization and um, the opening up of this society, adopting sort of secular laws to replace Sharia law, Islamic law. 
But in Saudi Arabia, the situation was different. So in, in the case of the formation of the Saudi state, both religion and politics were really interconnected, and we can't separate them. So the question for me was, why did an Islamist movement emerge in a country that that claims to rule by Sharia and claims to be the only Islamic state in the world. And this resulted in writing a book called Contesting the Saudi State, Islamic Voices from a New Generation, in which I looked at the transformation of uh, the Wahhabi movement, the Salafi tradition that uh, was extremely important for the rise of the Saudi state, and how the formation of the state itself resulted in the fragmentation of the religious tradition um, and, um, and how new voices within that tradition began to emerge, ranging from the loyalist Wahhabis to the most radical uh, jihadis uh, who later uh, uh, traveled around the world, especially um, in the 1980s to Afghanistan. And later on, we find a variant of their ideology and also strategies uh, uh, spreading across the globe from London to Chicago to New York to uh, Jakarta to all sorts of places. So I looked at how religion interacts with state power and what happens to a religious tradition when it becomes the religion of the state, but later on it fragments. And it's almost like a totalitarian system whereby you have a lot of dissident voices that are banned or punished simply because they uh, deviate from the authorized interpretation. And this is exactly what happened in Saudi Arabia with the Wahhabi movement and state control over religion. It's, it's fascinating just hearing you speaking about this. As someone who's read most, if not all, of, of what you've written, uh, I can see that trajectory, that, that evolution from the focus on, on tribal political projects and building up a, a form of political organisation to looking at that more hegemonic uh, narrative, that hegemonic control of, of religion. So it's it's really interesting to hear your take on on how that, that ebbed and flowed. But I wonder, can I just take you back to something? You said that there were two main or two contrasting approaches that you could have taken to look at, at Saudi Arabia. And, I, yeah, I, I agree with you about the challenges to political science and some of the issues that were there. But what was it about anthropology that that drew you in to, to try and shed light on the kingdom? Anthropology spoke the language of the people they were studying. And sometimes this uh, uh, became, a, a, their role was to translate this kind of language that manifests itself in society, in politics, in economics, to uh, another audience. And if you're writing in English, you're trying to explain to your English audience how a particular group of people in a faraway country uh, manages its um, uh, life. Sorry about that. That's okay. Yeah. So, in terms of the word tribe, uh, in, in the Western languages or in Orientalist literature, travel literature, they imagined like a big family uh, that is so cohesive with strong solidarity. And they presented it as a primitive form of organization. 
However, when you look at tribe across time, you see that it's a dynamic system. Um, it is not archaic. It adapts. It interacts with foreign powers and interacts with state. And there are schisms within the tribe that uh, an early generation of anthropologists like Evans Pritchard glossed and argued that these are cohesive, closed system. They follow genealogy. But even genealogy, which most people think that is fixed is actually a fluid system. It is something, it's a charter written in the present to justify present uh, relations, but it draws on the past. So it's like a narrative. It's a story created now in order to justify certain political, social, or economic relations. So th th this is what attracted me to anthropology. Uh, and, and I tried to avoid the language of state formation, drawing on uh, the Western experience, because most of the literature in political science theorizes the creation of state in Western context. You know, the Westphalian model, the rentier state, and all this kind of vocabulary doesn't really apply. And if it applies, it applies uh, with a great sort of uh, shortcomings that many political scientists corrected when they're looking at the Middle East at a later stage. But if you're looking at the 19th century onward, it's really difficult to invoke the theories and methodology of, of uh, uh, social science and, and with the political element uh, prominent in it in a country like Saudi Arabia. Even now, um, when you look at the institutions in the Saudi state, uh, we have something called the Consultative Council. And I, I laugh when I read uh, articles in the media looking at it as the Parliament of Saudi Arabia, <laughs> and they think it, it will it it actually uh, contribute to politics in Saudi Arabia. But when you look at it, you realize that this council, which is an advisory council, is appointed by the king, and it has an advisory role, and it really doesn't change much because politics is still run on personalized relations, on networks of people, on an elite that is tied to the uh, the king or the crown prince or even like antagonized by the uh, the king and the crown prince in recent time. So you, you really have to look beyond these sort of um, uh, appealing structures of power or institutions of power. And how does a monarchy exercise power in a country like Saudi Arabia? It doesn't go through the institutions that we are familiar with, for example, in European countries. It goes through a completely different process, network, and and people. So uh, this is why I thought um, uh, to uh, study Saudi Arabia using the methodology and the theoretical contribution of, of anthropologists is important. You, you have to also remember that when I started my academic career in the mid-80s, um, there were, uh, I would say, two or three types of literature. The first one was written by Western travelers who visited uh, Arabia, and they were fascinated by the desert and the Bedouins. <laughs> yeah, sure. And then there is the with the discovery of oil in the 1930s. They were uh, the, the Aramco historians, or what we call them now, the Aramco historians. These were intellectuals who traveled with the oil company that uh, was exploring the possibility of finding oil 
in Saudi Arabia. And and in a way, they, they glorified uh, Saudi Arabia simply because they were trying to make it appeal to Western governments, specifically the USA, to draw the USA into forming um, um, a kind of protectorate, I would say, in Saudi Arabia. And then the last uh, type of literature was extremely sparse. I remember there were two books that were extremely important to me, and that is uh, um, the book of the late uh, Professor Fred Halliday, Arabia Without Sultans. And the other one was Helen Lechner, um, uh, also on, on the Arabian Peninsula. And these were written in the late 60s, early 70s, and applied a social scientific approach rather than the travelogue uh, or the sort of um, you know, travel literature. Yeah. And they were extremely important, but there was nothing else. Of course, there, was, uh, there were local sources in Arabic, which I consulted for my research. And uh, I tried to weave the, the written sources with the oral narratives of the people. And in anthropology at the time, there was a debate about whether historians should use oral testimony or oral poetry. But in, a, in the context of Saudi Arabia, it was extremely important as long as you consider it a, a statement constructed in the present about the past rather than simply about uh, uh, what happened and sure. an accurate um, uh, construction. But this, I found, applies also to pri written primary sources because you know, historians use primary sources, but they're not the fact. And so one has to diversify the methodology when you're looking at Saudi Arabia simply because um, classical historical methods may not be the right thing to do. Exactly. Yeah, it's really, really interesting to to hear you fleshing out all of this stuff, and and I, I can certainly see how and why you you did the things that you did, and and the the personal stories that come out of your work are, are really, really powerful and really bring to light a lot of what you're you're talking about here. The other thing that that I reflect on when I read your work, particularly the the earlier stuff that that we're talking about now, is this sense that it allows us to reflect a little bit, not just on Saudi Arabia, but on ideas of political organization beyond the West as well. And I wonder if, if you had any particular thoughts on that that may have evolved over, over the course of your career. But it's something that really struck me from reading your early stuff. Yeah, I think if I give you an example of how this developed with me is when you look at gender, uh, obviously it's a very sensitive issue. And in, in the media in general, until very, very recently, Saudi Arabia or the, the status of Saudi women um, was the epitome of the opposite of a, a kind of uh, egalitarian uh, uh, situation with gender equality. And I, uh, by, by sort of like 2005, 2006, at the height of the global feminist movement, uh, all the reports say that Saudi women are oppressed, and this is because of Islam. It allows um, women to inherit half of the share of the men, or it allows men to marry four women. And this kind of analysis was really completely uh, um, 
um, irrelevant to Saudi Arabia. So I wanted to test this idea that Islam is responsible for the subjugation of women uh, or the, the uh, disempowerment of women. Uh, in a country like Saudi Arabia, as they, the women there remained the last ones to not be allowed to drive. And, and there is a whole range of uh, examples people would, would give to justify the view that it's all about Islam and how Islam treats its women. So I wrote this book um, on Saudi Arabia, and I called it a most masculine state. So I brought in the state again in my work and looked at whether it's uh, culture, a tribal primitive, so-called primitive culture, whether it's Islam or what is it that allows uh, uh, Saudi women to remain uh, in, uh, in a very confined uh, position. And I introduced the role of the state and also oil. Oil is regarded as an enabling factor, uh, a kind of resource that uh, allows women to flourish and benefit. Well, uh, we have to take that with a pinch of salt. First, the oil industry is a masculine industry, unlike, for example, textiles or other kind of industries that had spread in, in many countries. It is a masculine state. It is, uh, sorry, it's a masculine industry run by a masculine state. And this industry tends to have a completely different environment. It's usually in the desert, oil wells, engineers, and it's in remote parts of the country. And Saudi women were not drawn into this industry, which was the dominant industry until the present day in the country. They benefited uh, from the oil revenues uh, by uh, when the state became a welfare state. So they were provided with health, with education, uh, and very limited job opportunities because they were not in, employed in the largest sector of the economy. Uh, so oil is, is a double uh, a curse in a way. It allows women to have to stop dying when they give birth because they were hospitals, but at the same time, it disempowered them. Um, it allowed their men to have regular salaries, and women at one point became idle because they could employ domestic servants uh, as a result of the new wealth that flooded the country. But it did not empower them as you would expect. To go back to the role of the state, and the state obviously throughout the modern 20th century period projects itself as the, the emancipator of women. It boasts about the schools, it boasts about the university, the employment of women. But if you scrutinize that role, you find that women are being used by the state to project two images. If the state needs to appease the Islamic groups or the Islamists, it confines women and makes them uh, um, subject them to restrictions um, and projects them as the, the, the sources that would uh, uh, protect uh, the piety of the nation. So they are responsible for maintaining the morality of the whole country, and therefore they have to be confined. But as we see now with the new crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, women are being projected as the symbols of modernity and reform. So uh, 
the Washington um, Embassy of Saudi Arabia has a women's spokesperson. Um, women are promoted uh, and even allowed to drive after several decades of of the ban on driving. Uh, they are allowed to go to football stadiums, to watch football, to, to go to um, um, concerts, theater, cinema. So what is this about? It's about the state appropriating the women cause in order to project itself as a modernizing reformist force. And this uh, appeals to a Western audience or Western government who probably find the restrictions on women uh, in Saudi Arabia a little bit embarrassing to justify their relationship with, with Saudi Arabia. So with the situation of women throughout the formation of the state from the 1930s until now oscillated between being the, the source of piety and symbols of morality and the symbols of modernity and reform. So um, when we talk about gender equality, uh, I, I see that Islam was really not uh, the only uh, a factor contributing to the uh, um, uh, gender inequality in Saudi Arabia, but it is a factor among so many other factors that one has to consider in order to understand why Saudi uh, empowerment uh, had lagged behind. Sure, and that, it's really fascinating to hear you reflect on all these myriad, often competing forces and factors that, that shape not only the state itself, but also the, the relationship that individuals and women have with the state. Madawi, I'm conscious that we've taken up a lot of your time already, but there's one final question that I'd like to ask you, if I may, and that is just... Given given your your personal history, given your your personal situation being at a distance from Saudi Arabia, I wonder if you can just share how you've managed to overcome some of the challenges of, of doing fieldwork on a state that is incredibly um, incredibly concerned about its its image and about its position within the global political system. Yeah. Well, having limited access to Saudi Arabia as myself, I had to adjust my methodology and try to seek um, a balance between my uh, uh, written sources and my oral sources. So until very recently, I was able to interview Saudis uh, either when they uh, uh, traveled abroad or when um, uh, by uh, um, Skype or by phone, by email, and that was possible. Um, however, for in the last 10 years, it's become really difficult. And I do remember um, when I uh, wrote uh, one of my uh, books, uh, Muted Modernist, I interviewed a whole range of, of people um, who unfortunately now are in prison. So I, I give the example of Sheikh Salman al-Auda, uh, intellectual uh, Abdullah al-Malki, um, and, and many others. So I, if I interviewed them, I had to like conceal the fact that I did, and not even mention their, their names, uh, and just refer to their written work if they had produced books or articles. Um, and it, it was shocking to see that in, in 2015, um, uh, there were uh, two uh, 
political prisoners in Saudi Arabia. Um, and one of them was Sheikh Rushudi, um, and uh, another one was an activist, a human rights activist, Al-Artebi. And Amnesty reported that one of the charges against them when they were detained was they had my books and articles on their computers. Right. And, and, and I felt like a sense of responsibility that I really need to write about them to show uh, what was challenging in their approach. One of them was a judge, uh, but he was a judge who was trying to find a modern way within Islam to create a representative political system, uh, call for democracy. And the other one was a human rights activist who exposed torture in Saudi prison. So I wrote this book, Muted Modernness, capturing uh, their uh, uh, um, sort of resistance to a serious oppression and restriction on human rights, freedom of speech. So in terms of the methodology, is one when you're studying Saudi Arabia, you really have to be careful. Um, and um, many journalists go to Saudi Arabia now, and they are given the green light to interview specific individuals who will give them the official propaganda. But anybody who goes outside the circle of the authorized people will find that he can jeopardize the life of of his uh, of his um, um, interviewees, and therefore it's a very difficult situation. And Saudi Arabia is actually going through a very very difficult time uh, when we talk about freedom of expression and human rights. Yes, it may have cinemas and women can drive, but the irony of all this: the women campaigners who actually were behind the the a long campaign since the 1990s to to uh, push the government to lift the ban on driving are all in prison now. And the charges against them are, are, are very, very long. Um, they are regarded as traitors. And this is something that nobody can understand. Is if, if, if the crown prince is a reformer, he's given women the right to drive, he wants to empower women, why uh, put all women activists in prison? And the answer to this is that the, the feminine is political, and these women are not just going to uh, stop their struggle for equality uh, uh, behind the wheel. They, they're they demanding something more. They really demand uh, serious change, uh, serious recognition of the right of citizen to be represented, both men and women. And this is why he's put, uh, the, the Crown Prince put them in prison. Of course, and it's it's really quite uh, quite intense to hear you speak about that and the the way in which your work has had a, a devastating impact on people, unbeknownst to to you, of course. So it's uh, yeah, it's quite quite misconcerting, disconcerting, I should say. But Madawi, I'm conscious we're rapidly out of time, so I want to thank you so much for for giving us your time and for sharing your your reflections on your your career. It's been absolutely wonderful. So thank you so much. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, and until the next time.